Whoa. It's like a 4-H. Like super hay. <laughs> like hay is what I would, the aroma is like totally of hay. X-ray. And welcome to the Beer Vana Show, broadcast in Portland on X-Ray FM and available anywhere on your favorite podcast service. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Patrick. We're back in your backyard. We are. But I'm back. I'm back in the host chair. Yes. So all things are back to normal. Whew. That was a bit unsettling. <laughs> I liked it. It is. You clearly have a much easier job. Yeah. Uh, I'll take it. <laughs> I don't like being in the hot seat. Uh, you did a great job. Yeah. Last week uh, in our show, we... We did a beeronomics, a special beeronomics about distribution. So if you haven't listened to it, go back and listen. That's right. Three in a row. That's how important that issue was. Three podcasts. Yeah. But uh, but worthy. A worthy topic for three podcasts and something we've been literally meaning to do almost since we started this show. It is. If you want to understand beer, you must understand distribution. Yeah. Good stuff. All yeah. good stuff. So uh, hopefully we'll get some good feedback from y'all. Uh, we're here in your backyard again. We are indeed. A plane, plane just drove. Flew over. I assume our mics picked that up. I didn't hear a pain. Ah, uh, it's because you were you were in the zone as the host. True, I was doing the host thing. Uh, yeah, under the lovely oak tree in your backyard. Yeah, and dodging the. Though <laughs> we're dodging the sun, which is now riding a lot further, a lot lower in the sky than it used to here in yes. uh, here in September. Yes, Summer it's not. Ending. Uh, we're we're uh, right around the forty fifth parallel, uh, a little bit north of that, but um, it means that. The shoulder months outside of the solstices are evident because you can see we're not we're not right on the equator. <laughs> yeah, and and the the sun is really riding low in the sky, and it's going to ride a lot lower. But. Yeah, and the dark closes in very rapidly during this year. You you were asking whether I lament it, and I do. And I think the thing that I lament the most is that I love being so far north. I love the really late evening light. I like it when you can be out at nine thirty at night in your backyard and it's still light out. The real disadvantage with yeah. that is that the sun comes at, it starts rising, or the, it starts getting light right after five o'clock. You're about to say that wakes you up? I, well, I, <laughs> it wakes my wife up too. As it doesn't I, as wake I, me up at all. I don't care. As I joke to Sally, I got to plug up all my holes. So I plug up my ears and my, I have eye shades and yeah, I, yeah. I got to, but I love it when it's in the middle of the dead of winter. I don't like the sun. The truth is I don't like the sun. Yeah. You're a mole man. I'm a mole man. I, <laughs> I, I really love the uh, deep winter. I enjoy all seasons equally, yeah. and I really miss... Equally? No, I don't believe that. Okay, yeah, equally, you're right. I misspoke. But I enjoy all seasons in their own right. Summer is my today. least favorite. Uh, it was hard living in, in Sao Paulo, Brazil, for a year when every day the sun uh, went up at 6 and down at 6. Yep. And the weather. How, clo how close changed. is Sao Paulo to the uh, equator? Uh, Sao Paulo's uh, just barely on the Tropic of Cancer, right? The north one is Cancer. Capricorn is a, or no? Cancer is north. Capricorn yeah, yeah. is south. So it's just uh, almost exactly on the tro on the Tropic of uh, Cancer. So it's uh, it's it's just not quite or just barely tropical. I'm not even sure exactly where it runs, but it's right there. Yeah. So it's it's more or less a tropical climate. But Sao Paulo is interesting because it's up above the coast um, in a little plateau. And so it's actually quite temperate. It's really quite a lovely place to live. It's not the sort of super hot, humid you'd expect like you get in Rio. Or, Rio, yeah. It can be a little bit cool in the winter and a bit hot in the summer, but not dramatically so. The apartment we lived in had no no central heating or cooling. Right. Just had windows. Yeah. 
like if India. If it's a little bit cool, you close the windows. If it's a little bit warm, you open them. <laughs> nice. Anyway, <laughs> uh, we should get back to beer somehow. You know, we got to talk about the weather. We have to talk about random foreign countries. It's, it's, it's uh, kind of our jam. <laughs> That's right. Uh, one of the things this year that I miss, though, is because, you know, of COVID, there's fewer things to do. I've been doing a lot of evening, like um, getting out and paddleboard in the evening with the late light. Uh, and, and when the days close in, you can't do that anymore. So I'm starting to lose that. So that's one of my, one of the things that I, I grieve for now. Well, among many things in COVID era. <laughs> All right. I should introduce you. You're Jeff Allworth. You write beer books. You write other books too, but mostly beer books. Beer Bible, Secrets of Master Brewers, Widmer Way, all books you've written. Correct. Currently available to you at your local independent bookstore. It's true. And you usually mention uh, that I'm working on my second uh, edition of the Beer Bible, and I have a story to tell there. Oh, so Jeff, you're also working on the second edition of the Beer Bible. Yes. Uh, I am. I like, curr- as like a good late night talk show host. But- <laughs> He's supposed to like. I'll just I'll just allow you to yeah allow uh, you to tell your little amusing anecdote. I'll just I'll just so, in, yeah, intercede here. I and, hear that you're working on your <laughs> second edition of the beer bible. Yes, wife. Well, that reminds me of an interesting story. Oh, Patrick. tell me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm doing edits on the second edition of the beer bible, and I'm fighting with my editor. We're having we're we're like we're like battling over the edits, and I've never had that happen before, and it's rather challenging. Oh, so uh, interesting. So about what? Just like lots of things, or anything particular? So every editor has kind of their own style, and yeah. I've worked with a bunch of different editors. Some are very light-handed, some are more heavy-handed. Yeah. Uh, some work with your pro style, and some, like my current editor, does not love my pro style. Uh-oh, uh, that's not a good and, match. And so he is constantly smoothing away my character and my voice, uh, uh, which raises all these challenges for me as a, as a writer. Uh, you know, I have, it's like my precious voice. And I'm aware of, of, of all the dictates that writers are, are given about, you know, kill your babies. Like, don't let your voice get in the way of good writing. And right. so it's been very challenging for me. So it's, it's, uh, it's an interesting and, and... Challenging in a good way? I think, I think ultimately it will be challenging in a good way. It is not a comfortable way. Yeah. Now, I've had but, the same experience with editors. In the end, I found it good. The one sticking point that I had when I was writing my textbook was I was trying very hard to, to avoid uh, gender-specific pronouns. We have that's a that's a cool thing. So I wrote the first beer bible. I turned my manuscript in in 2013, and I did a thing which I considered sensitive to these issues by 2013 standards, which was I would switch the neutral pronoun from he to she right. back and forth. Yep. And in the interim, I on my, in my own writing have switched to the plural they they and there. Yep. And so we are now changing everything in the beer bible from my old system to the, they're there. Yeah. So this happens a lot, you know, in textbooks and economics in particular, because I'm always having examples like, you know, and, and it's, I also trying to get away from using names. I mean, I, I used to th- think it's good to be familiar, right? So Amy has a bakery and right. she makes cupcakes. And then, you know, that's a good example. Uh, and then you start worrying about being, you know, Anglo normative, being gender specific and all that. So I, I, uh, was sensitive to it and and it was just too hard like i it, it was too self-conscious to try to come up with all these different names and and that. and, it, and if you use something that is not uh white normative as a white person you worry about being offensive to people 
that you're trying to uh, uh, tip your hat to, right? Exactly. So, yeah. yeah. So it's just like, well, I don't want to appropriate this culture. Yeah. So what do I do? And I've here? lived in Brazil and I've lived in India, so those kinds of names pop into my head if I'm trying to get away from. <laughs> but then there's just those ones. I like, I don't know enough, and so I realize that probably in the end, the best thing to do is just try to avoid that kind of stuff at all. Yeah. Which is a little bit sad, I guess. Maybe a little bit good. It's hard for me to know. But anyway, we really got stuck on gender-specific pronouns. Like, I wasn't going to use he and she and his and hers. I wanted to just use like they, and yeah. that and that was a that was a fight that we got into. <laughs> I mean, I think I think these issues are really important, and I think it is. We are in this in this moment where, as white writers, we have to be really sensitive to these issues. And I think that uh, these things are never stable. You know, it's been it's been seven years, and now I'm using different pronouns. Uh, and it will change again. And so right now, as a white writer, I just need to be as sensitive as possible given the norms that we have now. Yeah, it's easy for me to be blasé about it. I, I lament the fact that it's now, you know, like factory A makes widgets. Right. Like, wait a minute, didn't we work really hard to get away from that? But then I realized <laughs> that all of my references are, are my own. And it's very hard for me to sort of see a different perspective. Um, give my own background and understand how these things can be alienating. If it's always Amy who makes cupcakes, you know, like I don't know Amy and I <laughs> what are cupcakes. Uh, so it's um, anyway. That's my little story about about editing. Right. But in general, I think the editing process is painful, but ultimately helpful. I always hate editing, no matter what. But sometimes it challenges me as a writer, and sometimes it doesn't. And of course, I like to not be challenged. So. I'm I'm having a nice experience now. Yeah. All right, now's the time you introduce me. <laughs> oh, sorry. You are wow, ten minutes in. Well, I just I'm just looking at the script. I'm like, yeah, okay, there's one last good. one last thing we haven't Whew, Sorry. You are Patrick Emerson. You are a uh, economics professor at Oregon State University and author of a intermediate micro economics text, which is why you know all about editors. <laughs> yeah. Well, which I still haven't read. I said I was gonna buy that book and read it, and I haven't done it. Well you don't have to buy it, it's free. Well, that's true. I was going to download it and, yeah. and read it. No, I haven't even done that. That's appropriate because I'm still behind on reading all your books. Although, I know. I, you know, that, I, do, that, I, do that, that. A lot. I have read a lot of your books. I just not, I'm a lot of pieces of your books. Excellent. We'll, we'll, we'll see today whether you've read anything about my, uh, my Amber Logger. My challenge to you, Jeff, is that I had a professional editor editing a number of chapters of that book. And then when the textbook market fell apart and, and we decided to stop the, the project with Pearson, and then I took it over to the open source textbook project at Oregon State, I suddenly didn't have an editor. And so the challenge, can you tell which of those chapters has been professionally edited and which have not? Yes, I will be able to tell. I guarantee that. <laughs> That's not what I meant. That's not what I said. I said, you have to tell me and that way I'll know you've read it. All right. I will, I will tell you. <laughs> you really don't want to read that book. Trust me. <laughs> All I right. feel challenged. <laughs> well, so our discussion of the changing of the seasons is not incidental to today's topic. In any normal year, you give me the thumbs up. I know. Would you like to tell us about your finger, Jeff? I, I had my finger operated on it, so now my in, it's my index finger, which yeah. is sticking out. It's wrapped in gauze, and it's sticking out weirdly. And I just gave you the thumbs up with my finger sticking out, so it's like I was pointing <laughs> looks, to looks, somebody over there. It's very uh, almost sinister because it looks like you've got a little like making a gun gesture with your hand. I, uh, I was recently at a pub, uh, one of the few pubs that I go to and somebody saw me sitting there and she came over and she said, at first I thought you were just flipping me off. 
<laughs> like, no, it's the index finger, and I can't do anything about it. <laughs> Which is super ironic because both my uh, younger son and you had to have surgeries on your fingers at almost the same time for almost the same reason. I know. It's interesting. And I considered it an old man thing, but it was well, your young son the, who had it, which was fantastic. Thing, which is that he had this tiny little band-aid which lasted a few days and then he's done. And you still have this massive bandage wrapped all around your hand and finger. They're so worried about me dying from this. There were there was all kinds of precautions taken. Yeah. Like you're a 52 year old man. We really don't want you to die from this minor <laughs> surgery. <laughs> So I pulled through. Uh, okay. Uh, all right. In any normal year, Munich's uh oh, I should have rehearsed this. Uh Visa? Yeah, it's like Visa at the end, but there's only one S, so I don't know. Therisen Visa? Fairground would have been the site of much activity this week as workers prepared for a party. Before the pandemic struck, the hundred eighty-seventh annual Oktoberfest was scheduled to start this Saturday, September nineteenth. Alas, it has been canceled this year. Nevertheless, we'll take the opportunity to discuss the fest, its history, and the beer it inspired. We may not be able to attend this year, but we can remind ourselves why it remains the granddaddy of beer fests. And in fact, you know, as the fall comes, this is one of the things that I look forward to, is the changing of the beers. Yeah, me too. And uh, readers of my blog will know that I've already blogged about my appreciation for the style of beer that is served at Oktoberfest Festival, which is also called Oktoberfest or Fest Beer. And uh, I'm really looking forward to having more Fest beers. So that'll be fun. Yeah. And then there's lots of other styles that come along in the fall as well, which, you know. Fresh hot beers, which we mentioned last week. Fresh hot beers, which we mentioned. People tend to start drinking darker, spicier beers. Yep. So, yeah. I know. It's cool. All right, uh, we will get to Oktoberfest in a moment. But first, of course, we have to tell you the news. A recent beer release caught our eye. Portland's Von Ebert Brewing announced the release of 33 Stars Lager, intriguing because it's made with all Oregon ingredients. This quote uh, I'm about to quote comes from brewer Sean Burke there. Our wheels really started turning when we saw the Skagit Valley Wint Malt was grown at Goshi Farms. We knew they also had a hop farm and instantly had the idea to make a lager using malt and hops from the same farm. It felt like a unique idea and a good way to let Oregon ingredients shine. So Goshi Farms is down there in the Wanama Valley. Mm-hmm. As more straight states grow hops and barley locally, this will likely become a commonplace practice. And I'm excited about that. And I actually had the idea, which I... I challenge any brewers listening to this now who uh, hail from different states to do, which is it would be super cool if like a Oregon brewery, including maybe Von Ebert and a Washington brewery made the same recipe, but out of their own ingredients. Ah. So like Cascade hops from Oregon and Cascade hops from Yakima and, you know, and then, and then we, and then we taste them and see if we can, we can tell the terroir of the beers. That's an excellent idea. Thank you. Super ultra mega beer geek shut uh, up <laughs> no no i do i meant <laughs> i think it's a fantastic idea full stop uh and particularly for the super mega ultra beer geeks uh this would be uh, fascinating by the way it reminds me that rogue brewery for years and years and years have had their own little uh wheat farm plus a maltery plus a hop farm plus yeah. a creamery they do all kinds of crazy stuff that company I know. Uh, Rogue has always had kind of a, 
uh, a weird status in Oregon uh, because they're one of the only national breweries. And so yeah. uh, we have a weird relationship to them. But uh, I, I got to go out and check that out. In fact, it was actually on my agenda for 2020 to do that. Mm-hmm. I was going to do a series on Rogue's cool stuff and then coronavirus. Yeah. So it'll be 2021. I'm going to I'm going to reach out to those guys and do it because it's actually one of the most interesting things happening in beer. And it's happening right here in Oregon and I should be writing about it. Yeah, you should. Yeah. All right. Get on that. All right. <laughs> okay. Next, uh, next piece of news. Uh, the state agency tracking beer sale sales release figures for June in Oregon, giving us the picture for the first half of this COVID year. Overall, things weren't terrible. The largest 20 breweries sold only 2% less beer in Oregon over the period. Looking more closely, 13 were in the red and breweries that lean more heavily on draft, of course, fared the worst. Yep. So yeah, those breweries that have been able to that were already heavily packaged and then could switch to package more easily have done well. Places that were really heavily tap have suffered. Yeah. And we've seen breweries like Freeman and Breakside, uh, kind of mid-sized breweries that had a lot of draft sales are scrambling to get stuff into package now. Yeah. And uh, uh, yeah, w- one of the biggest breweries that had really made massive strides there was Ninkasi. Yep. And uh, so... Uh, that 2% thing, if you took Nenkasi off that list, that 2% thing would be much bigger deficit because they accounted for most of the growth. Yeah. Ah, COVID. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have anything else to say about that. <laughs> try, try to keep some positive news in the news, but yeah, there's it's, uh, but, it's, it's tough times. Yeah. Uh, one, I guess I'll say one last thought about the fall co- coming uh, is that um, – Portland now is just replete with these seating areas that they've constructed out of normally um, street parking areas. Yeah, I wonder if this is going on in other cities. It is happening everywhere in Portland. It's crazy now. It's like my neighborhood, there's almost no parking left because right. which is fine. The problem is it kind of came late. That was my point, which is it's been really in this last month that it's really gone crazy. In fact, now they're blocking off some streets and letting restaurants sort of take over uh-huh. kind of the street and stuff. But that's not gonna. I mean, the, the weather's not going to hold much longer. So, no, and I mean, I think some some places are going to be able to uh, have roofs with the heat lamps, yeah. but not those places. Yeah. Not not the places that are out in the streets. Yeah. So I worry. I worry. This could be a dark, a dark fall and winter coming. Yeah. I, uh, I but hopefully, so. people will just keep buying beer in package. I guess. I was I was <laughs> texting with uh, my friend John Hall the editor and now kind of impresario of beer edge, his, his new enterprise. And we were both just lamenting how much we miss just going out to pubs with friends and, you yep. know, elbow to elbow to jowl to jowl, cheek to cheek, a yep. uh, few hours in a pub, crowded, loud. Boy, I, I miss that. Yeah. Even for introverts like you and I. Yeah. And he is, COVID- I think a little bit that way too. And he was saying, I don't, yeah. I'm surprised about how much I miss this stuff. Yeah. It's amazing how much social interaction matters. Yeah. Human beings in general, even introverts like us. It's yeah, it's tough. I have the, also I have the double whammy, which is I'm used to having a fair amount of just purely private time. And I have, you know, wife and two kids. My wife is a teacher. She's at home working and small ish house so that private time is gone there's like none <laughs> so all right but we should switch and we should talk about festivals let's talk about Oktoberfest. Let's talk about Oktoberfest in particular the uh the original and the beer style yeah. and to get into this i have a i have a quiz for you <laughs> and you can play at home so That's the okay. first i'm ready the first uh Oktoberfest took place in munich in 1810 yes 
was it originally that first one was it was it originally a beer fest a horse race a wedding or a funeral wow you probably prepared for this you betcha uh i'll take e it was a celebration of the great pretzel harvest (laughs) (laughs) it still is right it's the day that everyone brings in the pretzels from the harvest from the great pretzel and trees so, of Bavaria. Yeah, so you've got bushels and bushels of pretzels everywhere. And what do you need to celebrate? Beer. Beer. Uh, okay, so say that again. A wedding, a horse race, a... A funeral. A funeral. And a beer fest. Wow. Uh, <laughs> I'll take the most unlikely thing. A funeral. Wrong. <laughs> that was too unlikely. And, 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 and actually, I... Uh, <laughs> it wouldn't be much fast, but I thought maybe you're really going to surprise me. I sort of cheated, too, because um, uh, there were horse races at this event, which was not actually set up as a horse race. Uh, so, uh, see, if, that's why I knew that. But. <laughs> if you had guessed right, I would have said, well, half credit, because <laughs> that's how I roll. It was a wedding, and it was a wedding for... I now need to pull out my, my notes here, for I am old. Uh, Ludwig the future king of Bavaria and prince, uh, princess Teresa, 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 I don't know. Uh, of Saxon Hildberghausen. So at the start, you said, uh, Teresa Weissen, Weissa, the, the, ter- Oh the, yeah. That thing I couldn't pronounce. Yeah. Teresa Weissa. It, it, it translates to Teresa's meadow. This is where the festival is held. Exactly. See, it's all coming together. Uh, It was named for her. And and at that first festival, which was not a festival, it was just a wedding, uh, they got married and there were horse races and there was beer. Bushels and bushels of pretzels. And uh, probably bushels and bushels of pretzels from the famous (laughs) pretzel trees. (laughs) (laughs) The the people in Munich were like, that rocks. We should do that every year. This will be fun. We should have more fests. And I think the horse racing kind of took over for a while, but it also the beer, the beer came in as well. We should wear funny outfits, outfits made of leather and probably they weren't funny then. Little little dainty hats with feathers. And I I wonder if our, if our uh, listeners can hear the FedEx truck pulling up loudly (laughs) in front of the house. Welcome to urban Portland, (laughs) Oregon. Uh, By the way, when I was in possible, that's for me too. And they're trying to deliver us beer. When I was in Bavaria and hanging out with friends that we were staying with there, uh, we went by a traditional clothing store. Yeah. Lots of lederhosen and dirndls. I went and I tried to, to convince my wife she should get a dirndl. She did not. Uh, I have randomly, I had lederhosen. I have opinions about whether your wife should wear a dirndl, but. Let's just <laughs> let's leave that aside for now. Yeah, she's not exactly well, the right journal type, is she? <laughs> oh, I think she would look fantastic in a journal. And you, my friend, would look spectacular in a lederhosen. So randomly, I had lederhosen when I was a little kid. I have no idea how I got them or why or when or who. No, but I had I had lederhosen as a little kid. I went to one of those places in Munich, too, and they had a catalog yeah. And the catalog was spectacular. <laughs> it had all these uh, young Bavarians wearing uh, dirndls and lederhosen in 
like sexy pose. Yeah. So it was just like one sexy pose after another nice. in this tradi- tra- traditional wear. So we we took one of those uh, catalogs home with us and had it on our uh, coffee table for a while. And every time I picked it up, I cracked up. It was really amusing. But, by the way, Bavarians were very protective of their heritage, very proud of their heritage. And I was trying to sort of gently tease them about about this and they were just not having it like yeah yeah this is our traditional clothing is awesome shut up <laughs> so, so by the way i joke but i understand that uh bavarians are very proud. i take it very seriously yeah, they're very proud. and you know the the truth is there's quite a bit of bavarian style that i like they wear these cool little jackets that have a nehru collar mm-hmm. they're super cool and then yep. they wear these like fedoric things with the feathers yeah those are also cool yeah i would love to get one of those jackets in fact i, I, I up- would love to ha- for you to have one of those little hats that I would look in the hat. I go, I'll bring you back a hat. Thank you. I want one of those jackets, and I went into that store looking for one of those jackets. And those jackets, it turns out, are really expensive. <laughs> so I did not buy one of those jackets. <laughs> All right, let's talk about beer. Yeah, let's do it. So let me tell you a little bit about the uh, historic festival. By the way, just, just explain one thing quickly. What everybody wants to know: it's Oktoberfest. It happens in September. That's right. So. Explain. Well, it happens partly in, in October. It happens the so, as you read in the intro, it usually starts with you know maybe it, it's like sixteen days, and the majority of that is in September. I don't know why. I have no idea. They ask the Germans, man. <laughs> why are you here? Oh, <laughs> They're ridiculous. Yeah. Oh, I like know. the only thing I wanted answered. It's because it ends in October. Okay. There you go. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly what you need to do. Just sound authority. <laughs> uh, because in, in Bavaria, the most important thing is when things when, end. When, when things end. Yeah. So that's how they mark. Exactly. Things. Thank you. <laughs> now I'm just lying on the I'm just lying on the radio. Uh, no, so, you're just having a set of alternative facts. It it it's true. One one of the fascinating things is I don't know if you noticed, but. Uh, I described it as the 187th edition, which it would have been this year. And yet it started 210 years ago. So they haven't had it every year. This is not the first year that they will not have it. Uh, I'm sure they didn't have it in World War II, probably didn't have it in World War I, probably, I don't know. There were other things that inter- interceded. Right. So, but it, but it did start a long time ago. And now everybody knows there's this big drunken fest, which it is. Mm-hmm. Is it, by the way, just a pretty a truly Bavarian phenomenon or has it spread to other parts of Germany? No, it has to like other parts of the United States. There, there are beer festivals elsewhere, and in fact, it is not the oldest beer festival. Uh, there's an older one in Germany, may, maybe more than that. But the oldest beer festival in the world is a German beer festival that is not Oktoberfest. Um, so beer festivals are a thing, sure. have been, but uh, no, Oktoberfest is Munich. They, they, okay. they, they get, yeah, they get that one. I would think that Germans would respect the regional nature of this. Indeed. So a few stats about Oktoberfest. What we're missing. Millions of people go every year. Interestingly, and this is to your point, which I think is pretty cool, it is largely a local celebration. So 60% of the people are from Munich, amazingly, and 75% are from Bavaria. I always assumed that it was, before I knew anything about Germany, I just assumed it was one of those things where it was all Americans. Right. Locals (laughs) don't bother. Yeah. It's just a big tourist thing. No, I, I, yeah, actually, given what I know about Bavarian heritage. I'm- yeah, now that I know more about Bavaria, it's not surprising to me at all, but it is an amazing stat. They drink 8 million liters of beer there. <laughs> yes. 8 million liters. And uh, for anyone who's seen it, they usually serve them in one liter mug. So they're 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 drinking yeah, them. The, um, the, the, uh, the roasted chicken is the big deal, not oh. the sausage. Oh. Yeah. A half a million uh, chickens. Wow, who Which knew? is kind of amazing. 
Uh, and only 125,000 sausages. That I did not expect. There. Yeah, it's ch- chicken is the thing. So the truth is... Uh, it goes better with pretzels. Yeah, that could be true. <laughs> the truth is I have not yet made it to Oktoberfest and it's on my bucket list. I didn't want to go. I didn't want to spend some of my precious time in uh, Germany going to Oktoberfest. So I didn't go because I was going it. to breweries. But... I'm there. All right, 2021? 2021, let's go to Oktoberfest. Let's do it. Oh, and just the last little note there. Um, it pumps. Care to guess how much money it pumps into the local economy? I do not care to guess. A billion euros over 16 days. It's wow. quite a bit of money, which is not being pumped into Munich right now. Yeah. Uh, it would it would normally start this weekend. So um, depending on when you listen to this, I think the podcast will be broadcast on Thursday. And it will be that you know in two days or three days, depending on when you're listening to this. And so it's still always at this at this uh, fairground. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And so this it's is... really contained to that. Like it doesn't. There isn't like little satellite Oktoberfest activities at different places around town. I don't know. That's a great question. Uh, we'll if, have to go and find out. If it were in America, there would be. Like, right. Yeah, I, Everyone I, would capitalize on Oktoberfest. So totally. <laughs> it's Oktoberfest at you know. Yeah, yeah. The little breweries in town would be like, we're having our own out, outside the fest fest. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, okay, I want to talk about the beer next, but Good. I feel While like we do that. How yeah. about I get what? a beer? Yeah, I was going to say, why don't we have? Why don't we start drinking beer? Yeah, let's let's start with we have a fest beer on hand. Yes. Get by the. Don't wander away from your mind. I, I was going to be polite and serve you first, but I realized that that audio wouldn't work well. No, so, yeah, we, we got to have the audio. So we have a. Do you want to say what we have here? Uh, yeah, so this is the Rosenstadt Fest beer. So Rosenstadt is local Portland brewery, and this is their Fest beer. Anything else you want to say? Yeah, uh, one of the guys is German, two two man operation, and the other guy is married to a German, and they love German beer. And they have chosen the word Fest beer, and we're going to talk about why that is. Uh, oh, you get some too. Oh, okay. Yeah. Give me, you, give me a yes, little. <laughs> pour me a little, if you don't mind. There. Oh, that's not too bad. It's me, yeah. So, so as we're starting this beer, um, I know you're about to say something else, but just tell me sort of what to expect, what you would expect a fest beer, an Oktoberfest beer, to look and taste like. So we'll go back to 1810 and what they were drinking, all the way to the modern times, and that beer has changed a lot over the period of that time. Honestly, this is damn a good-looking beer. Yeah. So oh what gosh. you. What you want, um, we're going to talk about the color, which has shifted over the last 30 years. But it should be an amber lager. Uh, It should be, of course, crystal clear. And it should have, you know, I I get romantic about this style because it's a harvest beer. And I feel like it should be a nice fall color, like a turning leaves leaves or or an October sunset, uh, something like that. It should be, it should really remind you of those, those burnt orange colors of fall. And this one is that. This is beautiful. The main character we're getting out of this is the Munich malt, mm-hmm. which I'm going to talk about a little bit more later. But uh, it is going to have – Munich malt ha- is characterized by toast, bread and toast, but particularly a toasty quality. Yep. So these beers have toast. Traditional fest beers are going to be uh, hopped with spice, herbal to spicy hops, mm-hmm. which offset that toast very nicely. So it should be – and it should be present. It should be a not, a not a super bitter beer, but a nicely balanced beer. Yeah. The thing is – you know, at, at uh, Oktoberfest, they hand you liters of these things, <laughs> and you're you're going to drink like 
you know, more than one of those. So it's got to be a really balanced beer. Right. It's a little bit stronger. It's yeah. a harvest beer. So these are usually around 6%. Mm-hmm. And their flavor threshold is higher. Like Hellas is the classic beer of uh, Bavaria. These are stronger both in the malt and the hops. So the, the yep. balance point is higher. But um, but it should be totally harmonious because you got to drink five liters of these things. Yeah. <laughs> you got it. You got it. <laughs> yeah, this one, by the way, is 6.2% ABV. Around 6%. Yep. yep, there you go. So this is crystal clear. It's sort of an amber, but more to the orange, as you suggest. It's mm-hmm. really gorgeous. It's got a nice head head retention, very fine. Ah, carbonation. Mm. I get that nice toastiness. You, your toastiness comes right to the front, which is that sort of really lovely fall kind of I don't know, for me. Yeah, there's something about warm. toast that seems fall like, isn't warm, it? Yeah, I guess right? the warm. A little bit warm, yeah. but not like heavy warm, not like alcohol warm, but just a. Right. Ah, there are some hippies driving around in a Volkswagen out there. You hear that? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I relate to that. Yeah, I, I do too. Southeast Portland, baby. Okay, well, let's talk about how this beer got here by starting in 1810 and what people would have been drinking then. The beer at the time, uh, Bavarians were had been lagering for hundreds of years, but they were making brown lagers. Hmm. And the beer, there's an interesting kind of cork here. Uh, this is before the Czechs came along and showed them how to make bright beer? Yeah, that's right. Okay. Well, and it's before the Czechs were making bright beer. Oh, okay. So <laughs> that too. <laughs> yeah, it's about 30 years before Grohl made his. But a, a curious quirk about brewing is dating back to 1553. Uh, the Duke of Bavaria made it illegal to brew in the summer. So from April 23rd oh. to September 29th, you couldn't brew in the summer. And the reason for that is because uh, without refrigeration, the beer was gross. It would get infected. Uh-huh. And so to keep beer purity alive, rather than letting brewers risk it and subject people to possibly spoiled beer, they just outlawed it. This is actually kind of traditional around uh, Europe at the at the time that people didn't brew very much or uh, at all during the summer. And I'm going to, I have a super cool quote from my man, Georges de Camba, who wrote about uh, beer in the mid 19th century. Yep. And he was a Belgian. He wrote about uh, summer beer and uh, he was talking about Belgian beer, but it's, it, it's the issue of European beer in the summer uh, that he was writing about. So I'm going to read this because it really cracked me up. Uh, he, he talks about what happens if you do burn the summer. The result strongly affected the taste and the more or less nauseating odor, which the true character of this kind of adulteration. The smell is so characteristic that an experienced man can easily recognize this kind of alteration simply smelling the beer that has received the slightest breach of vosemer, or, and he translates, translates that as, the taste of summer. This kind of alteration, which always produces the bad alcoholic fermentation, which many brewers have given the name wild fermentation, because it still offers the symptoms unrelated to good fermentation. So this was, you know, everybody knew you brew in the summer and it could be bad. So they made a kind of classic thing called Merzen beer. The Germans did, which was the last beer that they could brew. And then they put that in the the cellars and they let it ripen all over the summer. 
And then for a harvest beer, they had perfectly ripe, ready to go lager. And that was what they celebrated the harvest with. So that, so when we, so there's always kind of this confusion between Oktoberfest and Märzen. Like sometimes you'll see Märzen slash Oktoberfest beer and it's kind of confusing because they're six months apart and what's, what's, what's happening here. And that's, what's happening. It's the brewers would make them in March, put them away and then for the harvest they would pull these beers out and start drinking them later so i assume you could have fresh meritson in march and then it would be put away and then it would pop back out but what would they drink all summer well i think they would drink other beer that was lighter uh the fest beer one thing so meritson beer can be any strength but the fest beer that was uh, used to to celebrate the fall season and especially as Oktoberfest came Mm -hmm. along was a little stronger a little finer a little bit more you know yeah, and probably one that survived cellaring for that long. Yeah, and I think, you know, the longer you cellar beer, the more mellow it gets. Right. So they were, you know, they were able to pull out the, like, the primo product for this. Oh, thing. that's actually kind of a cool, so this is sort of like all this beer has been sitting in wait, and then we, we pull it all out for our right. big festi- festival to celebrate the end of summer, essentially. Right? Yeah, and the, and, and the harvest, right? So the, the other thing that's happening is you have this moment of abundance, and you yeah, have this really harvest. abundant beer style. Yeah. <laughs> What's that? I said the pretzel harvest, as we yeah. talked about. Yeah. Harvest, yeah. So when those pretzel trees are all <laughs> the pretzel trees dry. are already, yeah, they're just they're, they're dropping them. By the way, if I'm distracted, it's because we are sitting underneath this big giant acorn tree, and there are two busy little squirrels back there. And man, they are <laughs> they're busy and they're running all around, hopping in the trees. Uh, they're very amusing and a bit distracting. So yeah. my apologies. They're, they're going to start hucking down acorns, yes. and it, it's kind of dangerous. Uh, one could <laughs> one could bump me on the head. Yeah, you're you're okay. As a <laughs> as my guest, but I, I could be being very cool squirrels, by the way. Uh, so, moving forward in time, uh, I think we've talked about, but I'll just mention briefly again. In eighteen in the eighteen thirties, these two famous brewers, Gabriel Settlemeyer from Spaten and Anton Dreyer from Vienna, the Schweckett Brewery, were apprentices at the same brewery and they became friends. They were scions of brewing empires and their their father sent them to learn about brewing. They became friends and they were like, we should go on a cool brewing odyssey, sort of like you and I did in 1992 when we went on a cool uh, world tour, uh, travel tour. And they went to England and learned the English method of uh, making lighter malt from indirect kilning. Right. Instead of using fire, putting fire right on the malt, yeah. it would uh, heat a heat a space indirectly, and so it would it would it would make the malt not get smoky and and, right. and harsh. So they brought this technology back. Dreyer made the first Vienna lagers, and Settlemeyer at Spaten. In 1842, made the first amber Märzen beer, which he served at Oktoberfest. Ah. So the first time we saw what could be the the first kind of iteration of what we're looking at was the text for yeah. That. It wasn't he didn't they didn't call it Oktoberfest, right. but it was just the the, the the beer that happened to be served. Yeah. yeah. They started calling it Oktoberfest 30 years later in 1872. That's when they first started calling it Oktoberfest. Uh, nobody had called it. So they've been making it now by 30 years. By 1872, Pilsners has been, have been around for 30 years. They also came out in 1842. So, the, you know, the Bavarians were still really into their dark beer. So this was kind of considered a radical thing. At that time, the Oktoberfest 
would have been made with almost all Munich malt, maybe some Pilsner malt, but mostly Munich malt. So they would have been quite dark yeah. by, by modern standards. And then, I know I'm stretching this out too long, but uh, <laughs> oh. in, in 1896, a cartel developed. One that we, one that people who have been to Oktoberfest will recognize. Uh-huh. Uh, it was when the big Munich breweries erected these giant things they called castles at the Teresa Weisse uh-huh. uh, to serve their beers. And they created a, a monopoly. And the beers that they served there could, they called them, they all called them Oktoberfest and they reserved the legal right to call their beers Oktoberfest. Nobody else uh, in Bavaria could call their beers Oktoberfest. <laughs> and those breweries, just in case you're interested, uh, they're all still around, were Augustiner, yeah. Hacker Shore, mm-hmm. Lohenrau, mm-hmm. uh, Pauliner, Pauliner, sorry, Spaten, and Hofbrauhaus, uh, which we, when did we mention, did Hofbrauhaus come out this week or last week? I'm not sure when we mentioned it. Oh, it was last week. It was a, a commenter mentioned there was a Hofbrau house in Chicago. And we were like, I wonder if that's the same Hofbrau house. Oh, right. Yeah, that's right. I was going <laughs> to say, I, I might have mentioned it because I spent a beautiful day in a beer garden in Munich that was a, a Hofbrau house. Absolutely. Beer garden. Um, so those guys developed this cartel to call it Oktoberfest. And of course, other brewers made Oktoberfest. They didn't call them Oktoberfest. They called them the same thing that uh, Rosenstadt called this beer, Fest beer. Fest. And they typically, uh, Oktoberfest beer is just Merzen beer, which is a is an amber lager, but they tend to be a little bit stronger. Mm-hmm. And uh, of those six classic Munich breweries, uh, five are around 5.8 or 5.8. Nine, the one that that varies is Hofbrauhaus, and they, there's a six point three. Oh, really? So if you're if you're short of time and you're at Oktoberfest and you want to catch up with your friends, you go to the Hofbrauhaus. You have a couple moss of those bad boys. Then... <laughs> <laughs> you caught up in their time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that's really uh, that's kind of the story of Oktoberfest. And uh, so these days, the modern the modern Oktoberfest is a Pilsner brew with Munich malt and a bit of a spicy hop. So what kind of hops? Oh, yeah. I, I should say that um, one thing that happened is the original Oktoberfest were made mostly with Munich malt. And uh, they were made that way for a long time. And uh, even uh, Jürgen Nuller, who founded Byron Brewery in Missoula, Montana, yep. he started brewing in Bavaria where he grew up in, as a brewer's apprentice in 1978 and became, his own, became a master brewer in 1986 there before he moved to the United States. And he remembers making these beers when they were much darker and they become much, much lighter. And in fact, when I was interviewing uh, Nuglaris, Dan Carey told me, he said, um, Modern Oktoberfests are basically uh, 14 Play-Doh helices <laughs> because they become very, very pale. Much of that uh, that Munich malt has been replaced by Pilsner malt because the preference for lighter and lighter beers. The cool thing that we're seeing in the United States is Americans know about that, and they're in, when they're making fest beers now, they're making more and more Munich malt right. and getting more and more of that toastiness back. Yeah. Uh, so that's cool. Um, in terms of the, the, the hopping, you're going to look for classic German uh, varieties that are that herbal spicy quality. So, Haldertown, Middlefru, Spalt, uh, probably not, uh, I don't know, some may use Tettnangers. Tettnangers is a little bit springier and zestier, um, Perle, those kinds of hops uh, to, to get that, that balancing spicy note. Yeah. 
Well, the frozen thought is delightful. I think it's really nice. I think these guys did an excellent job. Yeah, it looks it looks beautiful. It looks like fall. Uh, it does. It, <laughs> and they and they they use their label classically has the uh, blue and white checked Bavarian flag, which is characteristic of Oktoberfest. So kudos to them. There. That's right. You know, I didn't even notice that, but there it is. Yeah, it's got that sort of warm, toasty malt character with a little bit of uh, spice on the top from the hops. It's it's life on that. You know, honestly, I would have expected sort of a darkish lager. That was all I would tell you if, about Oktoberfest before I wouldn't really sort of have much more insight yeah. than that. You know, I, I was doing a, I did a post on this recently. I was kind of looking at the, the classics and even among the, the six classics that I mentioned earlier, they vary quite a bit in color. Uh, I can't remember which one was quite dark. One, one was actually still quite dark. Uh-huh. Um, I think it was Paul Honor was the, <laughs> the 14 Plato Hellas. <laughs> it was, was very, very, very light. Yeah. Um, so they, even, even now you, you do find variation yeah. and other breweries in Bavaria make these styles uh, in the fall as well. So I'm sure there's, if you have the opportunity to go to Bavaria and travel around, you'll see different fest beers of all different styles. But, well, not it, craft but the, that, that Munich is great. And I think it should be really prominently featured, the Munich malt. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say now that craft brewers in the United States have really started to embrace lagers in general, maybe we'll start seeing more and more local fest totally. beers. Yeah, I think so. Uh, I th- I argued on the blog rather boldly that Oktoberfest may be my favorite lager and I don't know if, I don't I don't know if I actually believe that but I thought <laughs> it was an inter- I thought it was a good provocation just because it's it's a different kind of lager most of the lagers are have a balance point that's a little bit lower yeah, uh, yeah. and I I love the maltiness of the the the, uh, the Oktoberfest especially given that they're able to achieve that in this kind of quaffable beer that's designed to be drunk in volume. Yeah. It's kind of a hard thing to do yeah. and it's really yeah. an impressive brewing feat. So I, I really admire this beer. Yeah. Although at 6%. Yeah. You can quaff a lot, but still. I know. You in the head. I know. That's <laughs> when we see 6% IPAs, we're like, well, that's, that's robust. Yeah. That's, that's plenty. So, so I'm, yeah. yeah, I'm surprised that that's how strong it is in Germany. In fact, but, so thus ends our Oktoberfest tale. However, the coolness of this episode has not ended because I brought a very special beer for us to try next. All right. Which comes from the same region. I'm going to let you do the honors here. All right. This beer, which you'll be delighted to know is quite low alcohol. <laughs> that's, a, that's my trademark now. It is your trademark. Well, also, it's the middle of the afternoon and we're tired and old. So Yeah, by the way, I think um, I think it's only like three. You mentioned this in the last pod, but not this pod. Is it? We're in your backyard, and somewhere nearby, there's kids with their little outdoor pool, which you're probably catching on our podcast. Yeah, they're screaming like banshees over there. <laughs> so we're talking about Oktoberfest. In some ways, we're still midsummer here because we're in a heat, we're in a heat wave. Totally. All right. All right, so tell us about this beer, man. Can you hear that? Yes, I can hear it. Not not quite Ed Wiener levels. But. No, it's not very good. I have the headset on. It doesn't work so well. Uh, so there's a beer... A traditional beer that died out a hundred years ago. This you may be holding the first commercial example of this beer style made in a hundred years, which is kind of remarkable. It comes from a brewery called Seedstock in Colorado, and the brewer there is really interested in in reviving historical styles. And this one is called Horner beer, which is uh, a style I had encountered, but. Uh, it, it's a really obscure style. It comes from Horn, Austria. 
Okay. That's where it gets its name. And Horn is just northwest of Vienna and not super far from the Czech border. It was brewed in the late 18th century. And in fact, Mozart, it's a, the only beer Mozart ever mentioned, and he mentioned it quite favorably. Uh, and he would, you know, he lived in the in the second half of the uh, 18th century, and it was it continued to be popular through uh, the 19th century, and then it died out around the turn of the 20th century. The interesting thing is, it's an all oat beer. It is made exclusively with oats. Wow, that is the only all uh, malted oat. All malted oats. And apparently, there's not actually that much information about this beer, uh, but it was apparently made with potassium bitartrate, which is cream, cream of tartar, tartar. Yeah, uh, to give it a, a, a uh, apparently a tart note. So here we go. I have no idea what this is going to taste way, like. Did you, I don't know if you found this, but it's 3% ABV. Oh, I, did, I, I thought it was 3% and I couldn't find it. Yeah, it's up there. It's 3% ABV. And it says brewed with cream of tartar, Mozart's favorite. There you go. And Seedstock is from Denver, by the way. They didn't exist, I believe, when I lived there. But wow, it has a the most unusual aroma ever. <laughs> it smells like uh, it's. It I remember kind of, cream, but like cream of tartar is a little thingy and powder you have for baking, right? Like I remember it, but I this, don't know anything about it. This reminds me. This is very bucolic. This reminds me of a barn. This is like, smells like, this oats, like, I guess. Oh my God, you're right. I wouldn't have, it's like hay, it's like horse and hay. Yeah. Yeah. Whoa. It's like a 4-H. Like super hay. Like <laughs> hay is what I would, the aroma is like totally of hay. Do yeah. you think? I do, yeah. It's like horse barn. It's totally like horse barn. It tastes like horse barn too. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of does. <laughs> It kind wow, of that's a crazy beer. It's a little bit uh, tart, not very tart, and it's got a wild flavor. I mean, I don't know how else to describe it because it's a hundred percent like if you've ever been in a barn with horses and hay in their paddocks. This is the smell and the taste. It is. <laughs> it just it just really is. What what, what, what what Mozart found attractive about this? I I mean, it's interesting. It is interesting. It's pretty tasty, but it's extremely evocative of a wow. It has taste. It has it a lot. What you mean by tasty? It has a lot of taste. It's I find it unpleasant. It's <laughs> I was say. I mean, I think it's a super interesting experiment. Really unpleasant. I find it unpleasant. Is it because of the evocation is so uh, of horsiness is so pronounced? It's super on the nose. Yeah. It's. I mean, we should explain. It's also of <laughs> the head lasted about two seconds and it was gone. Yeah. So it looks like a. A murky ass. It does glass look like a, it's like what you'd. Yeah, it's a murky hay colored, straw colored. It's with like, not a with not a bubble. It's inside. like what you might think you'd get once when you hosed out the horse paddock. <laughs> <laughs> so here, so I'm gonna go really. I'm gonna go really um into a dark place. But you know, like when you're. Are hiking, you glad you sent us this beer seed stock? <laughs> no, no, no. I don't mean. I mean, I think it's fabulous that they're trying this. This authentic style um there's a lot of reasons why those styles didn't last <laughs> and without doing this you wouldn't know uh, 
<laughs> so I, I mean, like, I think it's probably ex- exceptionally well-made beer. But here's the dark place, which is, you know, when you're like hiking on a trail that's shared by horses and they leave the little road apples around. Uh-huh. Yeah. That's kind of what it evokes when I drink it. Yeah. I wouldn't go that far. To me, it's, it's really, it's much more of the, uh, get a, we'll get a, a live action. This is good. Yeah. You should actually document. S- snap of this. Oh, here. Where's the bottle? Here, then give me the bottle. Yeah, the bottle. And there's right. more in there so you can get a nice pour. The, the, don't you like, we're live, live casting the... <laughs> live casting the photography. The photography. Here. Yeah, I mean... Uh, Everyone's going to get to see my, my wounded finger here. I was going to say something snarky about that to begin with when you are saying it's an old style that died out. And as an economist, I'd say, well, that's because the market has spoken. Better styles. It's like why these bright pilsners came and took over Germany. You know, bitters are dying out too, my friend. Just saying. Hey, shut up. That's <laughs> because people don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> exactly. Um, no, it is a it is a weird style of beer. I mean, I'm sure that there are some people who, I mean, as we know from the different hops and how they affect us differently, you and I are quite different. Uh, could be going on here, but yeah, I, I it's just it's super like hay horsey to me and. Yeah, it's don't enjoy it. It's got a very grainy. To me, it's not manure at all, but it's very grainy in a in a uh, horsey way. It's a <laughs> can't get away from the horse, though. Yeah, it's it's interesting. It's very interesting. I guess so. Uh, just as a technical matter, it must have been very hard to brew this because yes, um, anybody who's made made oatmeal knows what happens when you throw water hot water on on oats they just become a cake yeah and no I, doubt like <laughs> trying to get any liquid out of that them looks like oh my gosh i just think like super porridge yeah i, I, I assume i assume they used uh something put something in the mash that was neutral that would allow it to open up and allow liquid to get out like uh, rice holes are typical hmm. um so i, I will i i I hope to speak to the brewer about this beer and some of the other projects he's got going on. And it'll be interesting to hear <laughs> if he, uh, if he also was really surprised when he tasted this. Um, Cause you don't know, you know, you read these stories and you do your best to recreate them. I know. That's why I think it's fabulous. Like I think, as you say, it was probably a very difficult challenge and I think they've mastered that challenge probably fabulously. I imagine that what we're getting is a pretty authentic. And I think anybody who is interested in, in, in beer, historic beer, uh, beer made from different ingredients would really appreciate this experience because it is really distinctive. It is, this is not like a, Oh, you know, in, in many cases you try historical styles. And one of the things that's most disappointing is when it just tastes, uh, pallid and not very interesting and yeah. you can't really tell anything about it. It's like, well, it's not very, I, I oh, wouldn't no. know that that's a, oh, no, a historical this style. This is super distinct. This is really distinct. Uh, are there hops? I don't know. Yeah. I don't detect. They are, if there are, they're below the threshold. I don't, maybe it's the cream of tartar that gives it the balance. Yeah. It, it, I would say the acidity is, is low, but, um, Mm -hmm. slightly present. I mean, it's very, very slime. What a weird beer. Well, everybody, uh, Seedstock is definitely a brewery to watch. They're doing interesting stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for, for sending it. I don't mean to, you know, I'm not, I'm not commenting on the brewery. I'm just commenting on the style. Yeah, I, I, I really hope that the next time you guys do something weird and cool, I like Mearsburger 
which is made with uh, oh, what is the ingredient? It's it's it uses some herb that's horribly bitter, <laughs> and descriptions are like going to the gallows. <laughs> and this thing was super popular. Goethe talked about this beer. Yeah, well, so, it's like it's like the Burton Snatch. Right, exactly. Yeah. You've had that. That's disgusting. That's horrible. That's like the worst thing ever. <laughs> and how do people decide that this is a good thing? It's like Marmite. I know it's true. But or Vegemite, if you're from Australia, but I mean it's the same thing. Like that's that's just objectively horrendous stuff. The, the Burton Snatch is uh, the the smell of rotten eggs uh, in yeah, beer. Sulfur, yeah, yeah. The, the sulfur that is not the burning match, but the rotten eggs, uh, <laughs> which Patrick and I tried uh, in Burton. In Burton, and whoo boy, we were. It was also one of those things that was not subtle. That was another no, experience no, no. that we thought, yeah, will we be able to tell the Burton Snatch? Who yeah, we told us the time when it was celebrated, like this was like the the ultimate. You needed to have the Burton Snatch in your beer if you're yeah. going to call it real beer. So. All right, so seeds talk, Mearsberger. That's my my recommendation. Yeah. And then you can try the Burton. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Excellent. Well, thank you very much uh, for. Uh, sending us that seed stock. We'll look for other cool projects to come. Yeah. Uh, now we got to turn to the mailbag. Indeed. So we've got mailbag. And if I was a pro, I would actually have mailbag ready in front of me. Ah, here we go. <clears throat> All right. So, Jeff, would you like to get us started on the mailbag? All right. Uh, I will. Danny, uh, I've been interested to know how to pronounce this name. Danny comments on uh, social media sometimes. It's G-M-U-R. Jamur? Jamur? Gamur? Jamur? Danny, you should let us know how you pronounce your name. He wanted to um, mention uh, a cool uh, beer float thing. I was listening to your podcast about summer quenchers when you mentioned Fred Eckert's boosting beer floats. Bluebird Micro Creamery sells their own ice cream and beer. The store on Finney Ridge, uh, and I think Danny's up in well, near Tacoma. I think it's near Tacoma. Has a chocolate stout on tap and vanilla ice cream in the freezer. One of my favorite pleasures is to walk up there and have a beer float with that combination. It was delicious. The store on Finney is looking for a new location. Uh, anyway, uh, <laughs> sorry, cut into the weeds there. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's a super cool thing, Fred Eckhart. Uh, we talked about this in the past, and um, I, I I inquired to see if anybody had a beer float, and Danny shares that info. So that's super cool. Uh, by the way, sort of a little anecdote from last weekend when I was doing another backyard socially distant barbecue with a common friend of ours, both undergraduate roommates, Eric Hartman. Skeet man. Skeet man. <laughs> he was, uh, 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 I volunteered to bring beer and to bring dessert. And my uh, wife had baked a dessert and needed ice cream. So I went down to my corner store, my little bodega, and I got a six pack of IPA and, and a thing of vanilla ice cream. And of course, just being Portland, the guy, when I got the catfish, said, Ah, beer floats, I see. <laughs> I said, well, yeah, but probably not the best combination. I don't think I'd go for necessarily a hoppy IPA with beer float. But well, a hazy might be perfect. Hazy might be perfect. This was not that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. You were going to have to negotiate this other very long email we got. Uh, oh, I realized Scott. that this was, you've been, okay. Yeah, this is very long, so I'll, yeah. I'll do my best. I, I would, I, uh, I would skip down to the second uh, second paragraph. <laughs> Go from there. Gotcha. Okay. So this is from Scott DeLone. Thank you, Scott, for writing in. What he says, he doesn't have a specific question, but um, talks about liking when we talk about beer styles, like this podcast. 
the Lambic History of IPAs, the Pilsner Taste Off are some of my favorite episodes. In fact, the Lambic one, the IPA one, inspired me to have a beer tasting weekend. One weekend, I bought a few bottles of Lambic and Oud Creek from Lindemans and an Oud Goza, Goza, Goza from Tilquin, among others. Another weekend, I tried to recreate the history of IPA, starting with the British-style IPA, Yards, moving to Sierra Nevada, eventually getting to New England-style and milkshakes. They've been fun experiences for me so far, so thank you. So this uh, Pilsner taste off is a good way to... By the way, I'm thinking in the winter we should do an IPA taste off. I seed I I that in your mind. Yeah. So uh, uh, I was about to say our Pilsner taste off is a good way to sort of introduce yourself to like a good way to do it. Uh, doing blind tastings and um, and how to conduct that is uh, is a lot of fun. <laughs> it's a it's a good. What else are you going to do during this COVID time? Go get yourself a bunch of beer and, and do a tasting. Okay. Uh, he also has a podcast topic suggestion that is the beer city tour of Philadelphia. Lived in Philly suburbs all my life. It's a great beer city with a great history. Portland may be the beer vana of today, but Philly was the OG beer vana back in the nineties, in the eighteen nineties. That is pre prohibition it was one of the biggest brewing cities and one particular area of the city has even been called brewery town some estimates claim that there were close to 700 breweries in that era during its peak many were most likely uh, a zogel house homebrew style place given its german history but i think it would be a great pod topic some other philly tidbits i would this is a long email so i would say let's let's stop there and say yes philly is definitely on my list uh scott scott was wrote us a wonderful email and we we totally read this and uh we will keep these suggestions yeah uh our virtual beer tour is something that we're trying to do uh in this covid time to take people virtually places we can't go physically yeah i've been i've been trying to find new voices uh in beer to speak to when we visit these breweries because i think they might have a different access point but philly is an interesting place because there is an old beer and whiskey writer there named uh, lou bryson i mean old both in that he is our vintage but also he's been writing about beer forever and he might be an interesting guy to talk to about philly because he has seen the scene uh, over this whole period. Well, not since 1890, but <laughs> certainly since before the 1990s. Yeah. Uh, I love Philly. I've been there a number of times, but actually I haven't been exposed too much to it because I go there for conferences and things. I'm downtown. I don't get exposed too much to beer, except what they serve in in like the conference hotel bar. It's a terrible... I, when you say these things to me, it, it hurts my heart. When I, I've, I've been to Philly once, and I was there for less than 24 hours. And you know what I managed to do? I managed to go to the Yards Brewery. It was a pub. Actually, I don't know if it was the Yards pub, but they had a lot of Yards on tap. And it looked at Independence Hall. So I was drinking my porter from Yards, looking at Independence Hall. It was a transcendent experience. It was a perfect Philadelphia experience because that Philly would have been uh, one of the main ports for British porter back before colonial times. It is one of the most historic places to drink porter in the entire world. I was looking at Independence Hall. That's I was, cool. I was, I was thinking of Ben, ben Franklin over there. You know, <laughs> his beer. Drinking his, drinking his porter. He was probably actually drinking whiskey, but, you know, nevertheless, uh, it, was, it was very cool. Indeed. So, yeah. What I will Philly's say cool. about Philly, unequivocally, and I will not be challenged by anybody about this, it has the worst airport in the history of the world. Never, ever, if you can avoid it, fly in or out of Philly. I must have flown I've never into flown into Philly and not gotten stuck or something bad has happened. Huh. I've twice had to stay over in Philly because of airport calamities. 
I think I must have flown in. Actually, I might have been on the train. It is I don't terrible. know. I don't remember. It is, oh, I, so I was probably on the train. I hate I hate the Philadelphia airport. Next time I will walk to Philadelphia from Wilmington or something so I can <laughs> so I can avoid that damn airport. No, I've never been to the airport. Literally, this is true. I've never been to the airport without some kind of terrible catastrophe with my travel plans. Well, there you go. But it is also true that I fly out uh, that the the conferences I go to are in the winter, so winter is not good for Philadelphia either. What I was surprised about with Philly, being a West Coast guy, I, I always thought of Philly as, you know, one of the proudest cities on the planet, like, bat, you know, the crucible of democracy and all that. But Philly has a real chip on its shoulder. It feels like it's a little, you know, it's not Boston, it's not New York. Yeah. They're like always struggling for huh. attention. And I thought, come on, man, you're Philly. Ben Franklin is buried here. Yeah, stand is. up tall. You yeah. guys, you guys rock. It is a cool place. I like it. All right, so we will, we will at some point, we'll put that on our list, and we'll do a virtual beer tour of Philadelphia coming Indeed. up. Indeed, yeah, we'll, we'll, uh, yeah. At some point, we'll get Lou Bryson on the phone. All right, is that it for the mailbag? That's it. Nice. All right. Well, thank you very much, uh, everyone, for writing in, um, and. Uh, Letting us know. I'm trying to figure out. I'm trying to find my script. Uh, oh, I see. It doesn't have a. That's why. It's a single page script. All right. Uh, yeah. Sorry. That, that may be in a printing error. Anyway, carry on. Yes. I was just going to say thank you. Please uh, don't hesitate to send in your comments, suggestions. We like it all, even criticisms, as long as they're of Jeff. All right. A few words going out. Please subscribe. Tell, tell Patrick what, he, what you think of his old man analysis. <laughs> <laughs> and my and my cranky uh, anti fully airport. That's right. Rants. Uh, a few words going out. Please subscribe on Apple, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate us. Five stars, please. That helps other listeners find the show. We'd love to hear from you. So please, as we just said, send your questions and comments. You can do so by emailing Jeff at beervonablog.com or on Twitter. We're at beervonapod. Jeff blogs at the Beervana blog, and he tweets at Beervana. And Patrick tweets at Beeronomics. All right. Well, uh, what we have to cheers with is this interesting, wait, what's beer style called? Horner beer. Horner beer. We've got Horner beer to, to cheers with. <laughs> the next commercial juggernaut. Horner beer. <laughs> I have a sneaky suspicion that's not going to light the world on fire, but it is fascinating. And actually, I do really appreciate the opportunity to try it. So Thanks, thanks. C-Stock. Yeah, thanks, C-Stock, for sending along. Cheers, cheers. Patrick. Cheers.